Welcome to a special presentation of World Footprints Radio, featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. And now, please welcome your award-winning hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. And uh, as always, we are a show that celebrates responsible travel, culture, and heritage. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are broadcasting from our studio right outside our nation's capital. First indie soul singer-songwriter Teresa Anderson stops by to share her remarkable journey from Sweden to New Orleans. She's now one of the city's best-known artists, the voice of Hummingbird Go and Glory Bound, the song that sent the Saints on to victory in the Super Bowl. Teresa stops by to chat with us. Then the people and places that helped shape the development of jazz in New Orleans is being preserved by the New Orleans Jazz National Historical Park. Park Ranger Bruce Barnes of the National Park Service joins us to talk about this cultural treasure and his passion for the city's music heritage. Finally, an integral part of the fabric of New Orleans is the Faubourg Treme neighborhood, arguably the oldest black neighborhood in America. Not only is Treme the birthplace of the civil rights movement in the South and where African Americans lived free during slavery, it became a place of social and economic diversity. Native New Orleanian documentarian and director Don Logston joins us to tell the story of Treme in a new film, Faubourg Treme, the untold story of black New Orleans. And we invite you to visit us at World Footprints.com. We're very excited about this change, and we think you'll really enjoy the spectacular programming that we have planned. As we've mentioned before, our change to World Footprints will represent what our values have been all along, a celebration of responsible travel, culture, and heritage. To us, and to many we've shared this great news with, World Footprints better communicates our values of sustainability, global citizenship, travel philanthropy, and volunteerism. And we're excited that you'll be joining us on our journey to leave positive footprints and build positive legacies one step at a time. French Quarter Festival is a celebration of life, food, and music, and each year we've enjoyed bringing you inspiring musicians during our annual New Orleans broadcast. This year we're pleased to welcome singer-songwriter Teresa Anderson to our show. When she was 18 years old, Teresa Anderson moved from her home country of Sweden to New Orleans to, to pursue a music career, and today she's considered one of New Orleans' quintessential artists. Teresa's last album, Hummingbird Go was named by Offbeat Magazine as their number one album of 2008, and the Los Angeles Times have named her as one of their artists to watch. Most recently, Teresa recorded Glory Bound, the follow-up to the famous Saint song Who Dat, prior to the team heading to the Super Bowl. And you may, may have seen uh, Teresa on the late show with Conan O'Brien, but today you'll hear her on World Footprints Radio. Welcome to our show, Teresa. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm happy to be here with you. Well, we're happy to have you. And I have a quick question. Now that the Saints are Super Bowl champs, are you doing a follow-up to Glory Bound? <laughs> I think we're going to bask, bask in the glory for a while. We'll do any more follow-ups. What a great time. What a great time. And, and, and so happy uh, for the city. I know there's a lot of excitement and energy. And uh, where were you when, when the Saints won? Oh, I was in a uh, in the Roosevelt Hotel. Hotel, me and about 30 of my friends and kids and families have had uh, rented a suite, and so we were watching it together there, and uh, and then we headed out into the French Quarter for uh, to just view and be a part of the festivities. Wow, I, I I wish honestly I wish we were we were there too. It just didn't seem the same 
watching it on the television. Now, why why did you choose uh, New Orleans as a place to begin your music career over a decade ago? Well, uh, it's kind of like I was on one of those journeys where I was just basically following my heart, and um, and uh, I was in love with a boy who wanted to go to New Orleans, and uh, we played music together, and uh, I just uh, thought, well, that sounds good, and I uh, didn't know much about New Orleans other than a couple of things like uh, Louis Armstrong and some of the music stuff, but didn't really have a clue, and so I just kind of went here on a whim and, and ended up staying. I just fell in love with the city. Now, in reading your bio, uh, you mentioned that uh, something inside of you was awakened when you moved to New Orleans. Talk to us about your transformative journey from Sweden to New Orleans. That's quite a trip. It sure was trippy. <laughs> the whole thing. Um, you know, I was very, I was 18 when I moved here, so I didn't really have any previous travel experience. Very limited. And uh, first of all, you know, all your senses just wake up when you come into a new place that have different sounds, different scents, different tastes, different language, different colors, temperature, everything was different from how I grew up in Sweden. So it was it was actually pretty overwhelming at first. Mm. And I think I, I was, you know, I, I became a little bit shy and, and cautious in the beginning. But, you know, the, the feeling of landing at the airport and you feel and you smell that musky smell. And then you get in a car and you drive down the New Orleans streets, which are really bumpy. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And um, and then I think the first day I was in New Orleans, we went to the French Quarter, and I walked around, and I heard the brass bands play, and I saw all the painters and the artists that were out there on Jackson Square, and I just fell in love. I felt like, even though it was so different and foreign to me, when I heard the music, that's when I really felt like I, I connected with that, as if, as if something, like I'd been there before, you know, in spirit, somehow. It really just, um, it, it was a place for me. Yeah, you know, we, we, we actually agree with you and, and we feel the same and when we talk about New Orleans we've adopted the city as our second home and there's just something about the city that we absolutely love and I, it's hard to articulate it's it's just a feeling and it's it's really difficult to put it uh, into words but it it changes you and and you know I'm curious I, I can tell I you know I was gonna ask you how your life has changed and your music has changed since you've been there, but I I can actually hear an, an accent. You picked up a New Orleans accent, which is really <laughs> cute. Yeah. yeah. That would make sense. You know, I've spent most of the time I've been in the United States here in New Orleans if I haven't been traveling on the road. Mm-hmm. So it, it's definitely, uh, it's been my home. How, how has it changed the way you, you craft your music? I wasn't a writer before I moved here, um, but I think that what it brought out in me, and, and this could be debated, I guess, whether you're born with something or if you learn something, but what New Orleans has really uh, taught me is, uh, or, or inspired in, in me and my musicianship is, is just to be a very fluid, and, uh, and I guess there's a, wa- a lot of water around here, and that's kind of what I had to learn, and I grew up that way on Gotland, too, with a lot of water around me, but mm-hmm. it's different here. You learn to improvise, and you learn to just pick up on that music that flows around you at all times. Um, I think that it's very rhythmical and very visceral here, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's not perfect. Uh, the, the city and the music builds a lot. It, it uh, there's uh, you know there's there's all kinds of uh, neighborhoods and they spill together and 
and it's not real clean cut here, which is kind of how the music is too. And I think that, um, and I think that's how my music is too. Mm. Talk to us about how you would describe your style of music. Well, I think it has grown into something that is best described as indie soul. Mm. Um, I kind of have a you know a unique way of presenting my music, but I, I do it my own little way where I loop myself and record myself and play all the instruments. Um, stylistically, I think that the rhythmical side of my music and the and the beats and stuff are very New Orleans inspired. Um, a lot of the soulfulness that comes from a lot of Alan Toussaint recordings from the 60s and 50s and up till now. Um, singers like Betty Harris, Irma Thomas, the Dixie Cup, um, all beautiful, soulful New Orleans music that's, that's got its own thing has really inspired me. Mm-hmm. I even sampled Smokey Johnson on a song. And then melodically and, and harmonically, I think that my Swedish background is still there, and that's what melts together with the rhythms of New Orleans. You know, that was a a question, you know, I was going to ask you how you mesh those two cultures. You know, you you grew up in Sweden. You've been living in New Orleans for over a decade now. And I'm just wondering how those cultures are interpreted uh, and and displayed in your your music. Well, I do think that... uh you know, you pay attention to who you are and, and sort of what your personality is. And, and for me, I have this really happy side that loves to dance and, and have fun and be carefree. And, and that one really comes out when I'm in New Orleans. And then there's this very um, melancholy, very sort of dark and, and sad side <laughs> of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm even named after a song called Tristeza, but in Sweden it's about a sunny, happy little girl, so it's a contradiction right there. But <laughs> that's a little bit like how my music is, I think. Um, the, the more melodic, sort of sad and minor kind of um, wandering melodies do come from some of my Swedish background and, mm-hmm. and I also work with some Swedish people my producer Tobias Froberg is from Sweden and the guy that mixes my music Linus Larsson is also from Sweden and Gotland where I'm from mm. now being from Sweden uh, you know you know, most people think of ABBA what were some of the musical influences on you growing up you know to this day I still love them I do too <laughs> <laughs> I do too uh, they're great they're great pop bands really yeah. amazing arrangements and crafting of song you know that, that's I'm my hats off to them I think they're amazing um, there's a lot of music in Sweden that's great a lot of um, great singers uh, and jazz music and mm-hmm. and also lately I've been tuning in a lot more to the new pop music and the more indie pop stuff that keeps coming out of Sweden mm-hmm. uh, like Lone Indie it's by Froberg Anna Brun Peter Bjorn and John mm-hmm. all these bands are kind of pop on the radar over here Mickey Lee um, you know that some of them coming towards and, and some of them I meet over in Sweden mm-hmm. now I, I know you're getting ready to head back home to, to Sweden for a little bit but when you you're touring where do you like to go other than home home is always you know a, a place that I, I gravitate to um, and I would imagine the same is for you but where do you like to go what countries have you toured that have really touched you like home and like New Orleans your other home well it's kind of interesting when you go to places in Europe who are much older because so, so much of the United States feel very young when you go mm-hmm. to Europe to tour like if you go to Paris, for instance, you know, you can you can see some of the similarities between New Orleans and um, in Europe. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, I haven't uh, lately. I haven't been touring a lot around in other parts of Europe, but uh, there's been a lot of Scandinavia based, and it's been a lot of discovery for me too, because you know I was so young when I left Sweden that I had only seen very small parts of my own country, even. Mm. So, uh, so I really enjoy doing that. Um, but the United States is a beautiful country. And there's so much, um, so many places to go here. And, and when you tour, you know, try and when you go on the West Coast and you have a chance to go through the Redwood Forest or, mm-hmm. you know, you might mm-hmm. drive through uh, Yellowstone Park or, or just there's so much to see mm-hmm. other than the highway. And so little time on your tour. You're just trying to get to the next place. But um, I do enjoy having that little extra time and you can maybe take a break and look at the view of Grand Canyon or something on the way. <laughs> yeah, and, and I know you did a, a, a couple of other other things um, in your kitchen. I know your kitchen played a very pivotal role <laughs> in, yeah. in the production of Hummingbird Go. It did, uh, yeah. T- tell, talk a little bit about that because I, I, th- I just think that's so cool and creative and, and really interesting. Well, thank you. I, um, yeah. I had a lot of fun. I think when I started writing Hummingbird Go and I started developing the one-woman show, I was uh, I had some time off the road, and um, and I did spend a lot of time in and around my garden, and and then eventually after I'd written the record, I ended up in my kitchen demoing the whole thing, and. Um, it has a very specific sound in there, um, which Tobias liked, and, and that's why we ended up actually recording the record in the kitchen. Also, what I did in the kitchen is um, I had developed this show, and I couldn't explain in words how I performed my one-woman show, so I decided to make a video. And I set up in the corner of the kitchen and put up a little camera and just pressed play, and then I, I made a video of the song Na Na Na, which then ended up going out on YouTube to a whole bunch of viewers and uh, so I, I feel like a lot of people have been visiting me in my kitchen <laughs> <laughs> well you, you know and, and you and you worked with uh, you've worked with such a, a number of great people um, in and around New Orleans from the Neville brothers to mm-hmm. Betty Harris who you mentioned um, earlier I'm assuming, just based on some of the people that we've met in the music community down in New Orleans, that um, the the community itself is very cohesive and supportive. Is is that something you found? Absolutely. You know, when I first moved here, I I had um, such great experience sitting in with people and amazing singers like Sally Towns used to have this uh, one woman show actually where she was playing left hand bass on the keyboard and harmonizing and running a drum machine all at the same time and she was doing this down on Bourbon Street and she had guests like Luther Kent and uh, Juanita Brooks who unfortunately passed away this year but mm. I used to go down there and, uh, and sit in with them and they would show me they would teach me how to perform for an audience and how to work a song and work a room and all this stuff and, and yeah and then you know getting to know a bunch of the musicians in town like the guys from the radiators and john Vdokovich and george porter and all these guys who have through the years done a bunch of shows with and have become friends mm-hmm. and and they are you know they're from here so they go the real deal and and i've been very fortunate to be able to hang out and play and 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 learn from them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Teresa, what what can we look forward to you uh, doing and uh, creating in the coming uh, years? And will you come to Washington, D.C.? <laughs> oh, I love Washington, D.C. I've played there a few times, and it's always been great. 
and uh, yes, I definitely want to come back. I uh, right now I actually just uh, finished a live DVD recording of my show, of my one woman show, and it is coming out in April. Mm. So uh, just in a few days, actually. Um, and I did this here in town at the uh, famous Le Petit Theater mm-hmm. uh, in the French Quarter, right there by Jackson Square. And uh, I had Alan Toussaint as my special guest, which I was very honored by. Mm. And um, so this is coming out. I'm doing some more touring. I am finishing a record um, that's going to come out, uh, I think, in the beginning of 2011. Mm-hmm. So there'll be some tours leading up to that. Well, probably will be coming to D.C. And so... Uh, you know the show goes on and keep working it. <laughs> well, in, travel. Yeah, well, you know that's always a good thing in our in our opinion. <laughs> yeah. What um what uh, where can people find more information about you? Do you have a website? website. Okay. Yes, uh, it's uh, www. and I spell Teresa T H E R E S A and Anderson is the Swedish spelling with two S's. Okay. Good deal. Yeah. Good deal. Now, do you have plans to stay in New Orleans, or, or do you think you may move on to a larger music capital like Los Angeles or, or New York? What are, you what know, I, I love visiting Los Angeles, and I love visiting in New York, and, uh, you know, sometimes to spend extended periods of time in those places, but New Orleans is home. This is where I have my house and my family, and... And so this is probably where I'm going to be staying. Mm-hmm. Well, good. We look forward to seeing you every year we come down <laughs> for French Quarter Wonderful. Festival. <laughs> Teresa Anderson, the songbird of New Orleans. That's my new nickname for you. Yeah. <laughs> Who recently released A Hummingbird Go. Thank you so much for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. When we come back, we'll visit the New Orleans Jazz National Historic Park with Bruce Barnes of the National Park Service. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, and we'll be back right after this. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, because they spend their time looking at those special places. There are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet... Go with Will Footprints Radio. I'm a doctor. I'm a teacher. I live in the South. California is my home. I speak fluent Spanish. No hablo espanol. I have brown eyes. My eyes are blue. We're very different people, but we do have something in common. I made a donation to the Red Cross. When disaster struck and I needed help, her gift to the American Red Cross changed my life. When you support the American Red Cross, you change a life, starting with your own. Call 1-800-RED-CROSS or visit redcross.org and find out about life-changing opportunities in your area. What if you didn't care about being on the fast track? Instead of flying to the big interview, what if you flew somewhere else altogether, like a village in Botswana or a tiny island in the Pacific where needs are easy to see? What if you decided to share your skills with others and help someone else get ahead? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 800-424-8580 or visit PeaceCorps.gov. Once again, let's join your hosts, Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. 
Jazz music, which was born in New Orleans at the turn of the 20th century, is a combination of many music styles, including gospel, ragtime, and blues. The cultural history of the people and places that helped shape the development of jazz in New Orleans is being preserved by the New Orleans Jazz National Historical Park. Bruce Barnes is a park ranger with the National Park Service in New Orleans, and he joins us to talk about this cultural treasure. Bruce, welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Tell us about the New Orleans Jazz Historical Park, when it was created, and what visitors can see when they come. Well, New Orleans Jazz National Historical Park was uh, established October 31st, 1994. Our United States Congress set aside uh, jazz as a national and valuable treasure and art form. So that's the reason uh, we are here in this park. Uh, we're located right in the heart of New Orleans, Louisiana. Our visitor center is at 916 North Peter Street, and we uh, interpret the um, development, the um, progression uh, of jazz music as it started here and spread uh, around the country, around the world, throughout the universe. Jazz is um, almost practically um, in some shape or form found all over the world uh, and it started here in New Orleans so we uh, help to educate park visitors uh, through lots of interpretive uh, programs, concerts, uh, lecture series and mm -hmm. partnering with all sorts of entities here in the city and beyond on um, educating people about uh, jazz and it's the many stories that help to create the music mm -hmm. perform itself. Performance hall here as well as a you know, visitor reception area uh, and we show uh, scores of jazz films, also jazz related films and about musicians, about different uh, styles of music here in the city. For example, we have a film on um, uh, jazz funerals. Mm -hmm. Uh, it explains that the uh, second lines that take place here in the city, uh, we've been involved in lots of different aspects of, uh, you know, the development of jazz and films here, jazz luminaries like Louis Armstrong, mm -hmm. uh, Jelly Roll Morton, you name it. So we have uh, numbers of films that people can see here on uh, different hours um, during uh, any given day, as well as interpretive programs. Uh, that myself and another colleague do on the uh, roots of jazz, different kinds of music like blues, like spirituals, like uh, Creole music, music from the Caribbean, mm -hmm. uh, from Africa, from old world Europe, mm -hmm. that have helped to influence the development of jazz. Now, you know, you, you offer a lot of services to, to visitors and, and some that you describe, but you also have a ranger program. What exactly is that? Well, it's just uh, the, the first thing that I was just talking about there, the, the programs that we ourselves do. Uh, I'm a musician as well as my colleague, Matt Hampsey, and we, we uh, have what we call informances, a combination of performance and lecture, like we have this afternoon at 3 o'clock in our visitor center here. Uh, talking about uh, jazz and its early roots and development and how it was influenced by uh, the cultural baggage that people brought with them from Africa, from Europe, from Asia uh, that, that came in here and helped to start the city of New Orleans. So uh, we play and we have question and answer and we lecture about these uh, early developments in jazz. Now, one of the things that uh, the National Park Service has uh, are these jazz history walking tours which expose the visitor to 
six of the neighborhoods in New Orleans that have had a great impact on jazz. Talk to us about that, and talk to us also about the Jazz Walk Hall of Fame. Well, um, we have a, a series of uh, brochures that you can pick up here that were developed by the New Orleans Jazz Commission uh, several years ago that um, specifically gives you um, site, location, and address of the historical places that are related to jazz. The many different theaters that were once along Canal Street, for example, about 17 theaters on Canal Street. Um, you know, the site of uh, the area where Louis Armstrong was born, the mm -hmm. home of uh, Jelly Roll Morton, the home of Sidney Bechet, the home of uh, Charles Bolden. Uh, so the many different places where jazz was related, the, the, the dance halls, the bars, the rum boogie bars. So you can get it by uh, city location. Uh, for example, the View Carré in Central City is one brochure. Um, you can get it uh, View Carré in the Treme uh, neighborhood. That's mm -hmm. another area they're marrying. So uh, you can read those, and it, they are self-guided. Uh, you can walk or drive to those sites. We also have a, a new, uh, more innovative way to do it, and that is to call a 1-800 number and be able to um, get not just um, the locations, but audio as well as music mm -hmm. related to uh, jazz sites around uh, the downtown area, and specifically uh, Armstrong Park and Congo Square and the French Quarter. So you can call up and, and dial that number, and you'll hear people like myself, uh, like my colleague, uh, <laughs> speaking to these specific sites, and we all took turns at it. Tech Stevens, who was a great radio personality here, uh, talking about uh, these jazz-related sites, and then the music is also married into it and interjected. So selected songs that go with it. Some of them we played ourselves, others... Uh, we had other musicians to play, uh, so that's what you get in the um, the, the, the jazz uh, tour that you can call the 1-800 number and get, mm -hmm. as well as if you take a ferry ride across the river uh, to Algiers Point, um, the jazz uh, walking tour that is there where there are street lamps. Each lamp has a uh, particular jazz luminary, uh, whether it's um, Henry Red Allen, or Louis Armstrong or Danny Barker. Each uh, light you come to, you press a button, and you'll see their photograph and some history, and then you get an audio synopsis of mm -hmm. that person's life and, and what they did in jazz music here in New Orleans. Go to our website and find out that. You'll find out the, about the, the programs that we have, such as our Saturday morning Music for All Ages program, teaching young people uh, about traditional New Orleans brass band and jazz music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is a program that I started and has become very popular, not just for the children, but the folks that like to come in here. Mm -hmm. uh, the music played by the many different brass bands in the city, like the Treme Brass Band and Storvin Stompers. And I started that program four years ago, um, January 2nd. Mm -hmm. It's worked out great. So mm -hmm. uh, the students that have come in, some of them have started their own bands and they they uh, love to uh, take part in it, and uh, they play during French Quarter Fest and the Jazz Fest and the Satchmo Summer Fest. Mm -hmm. They traveled out to Albany, Georgia, and played the homecoming there. So that's a, a great program. Hey, you all need to come up to D.C. too. <laughs> well, invite us up. We'd love to come to D.C. <laughs> you have a you have a formal invitation. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, um, I, I know you have a, a project called the Oral History. Uh, 
project which has collected oral histories from over 130 New Orleans musicians. Tell us a little bit about that and how that project is shared with uh, visitors to the um, Jazz National Historical Park. Well, this is a, a program that we felt uh, was very important, was to be able to capture musicians and their stories, or um, sometimes it may be the relatives of uh, uh, well-known New Orleans musicians, or club owners, or sometimes the, uh, the booking agents, but the many different stories of, of jazz, and interviews have been done. We film all of ours and, and make them available on DVD copies mm-hmm. of the uh, the interviews that we've done. Also in our visitor center, uh, we have an oral history exhibit up with photographs of many of the uh, people who have been interviewed to kind of put a face with it for those who don't have time to uh, do some kind of first-hand research. And we have an exhibit um, that if you press a button, you can get some of the short synopsis of many of these uh, old histories that we've done and it's on a flat screen mm-hmm. uh, that you can watch it you can sit and watch and listen to uh, the old history of uh, you know, someone like uh, Lionel Furbos who's a wonderful trumpet player here in the city the oldest active jazz musician he's uh, coming up on his 99th birthday mm. really? Uh, in July yes and so mm. he's a phenomenon Lionel Furbos Creole musicians who not just a musician, but also a Creole plasterer, and uh, so he's he's had that trade in his family. And Lionel's story is wonderful, and uh, so we love to celebrate people like Lionel Furbos. And you can still come into town, hear his story, realize that someone that was playing in 1924 professionally in the city is still alive and playing Saturday nights at the Palm Court, three blocks from our visitor center. Mm. Uh, so those are stories that you can't buy sell or beat. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's a part of our history program, so. Well, we'd love to meet him when we're down there for French Quarter Festival. I think that... down, he's the real deal. Mm, yeah, well, opinion. that's, that is truly special. One of those special things uh, that, uh, that the park features is the Arrowhead Jazz Band, and, uh, they help to, uh, recreate jazz from many different eras in uh, New Orleans jazz history. Talk to us about the role that they're playing in your educational mission. Well, that was a wonderful program that was put on by one of our jazz commissioners, um, Barry Martin, uh, really had that concept. So he wanted to take uh, music uh, from the early eras, from the 20s and 30s, and record some of the, the music that was sheet music um, written down from that area. A lot of it is obscure songs that people wouldn't know. Some of it is more popular, but he put together a great uh, collective group of musicians to record those songs, also from the you know, the uh, 40s and 50s and the 40s through 60s, for example. Uh, so he took different time periods and recorded uh, songs that were uh, important and popular and sometimes obscure like the Moose March. <laughs> Last time you heard of that, March of the Moose. Well, well, well to, to explain that one a little bit more. <laughs> well, um, you know, jazz in its early development um, was closely related to and hugely influenced by brass band music. So marches, ragtime music, all these styles of music became a part of the jazz idiom, as well as music from uh, churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and still, uh, we're coming up on the Easter season right now, 
Palm Sunday, uh, especially uptown, all of the small churches have brass bands that play, and they play nothing but hymns and spirituals. Ooh. And this is a tradition that gave jazz its early uh, background when it comes to music play for funerals, as well as church anniversary celebrating. Uh, so you'll see sometimes eight or nine brass bands crisscrossing the street and, and uh, crossing each other's path at that time period. Uh, and it was also the training ground for early musicians like Louis Armstrong. He, his earliest memories and the thing that he revered the, the best was being able to follow his uh, lifetime idol, uh, King Oliver, mm-hmm. playing in the brass band. And being able to ask him how to play certain songs or make a note um, and so this is moving free entertainment. It's very important in New Orleans for people to understand that. And when you come here, to, that you still can come to a place and see music untapped and unchanged over the last 150 or 60 years, mm. uh, that people still use these brass bands the same way in church groups, in social aid and pleasure clubs. You can follow the, the Prince of Wales, the Young Men Olympus, and, and uh, you know these, these groups have been together for 149 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Still playing the music, doing it the same way that they did it, uh, you know, 150 years ago. And, uh, and I think that's what keeps New Orleans very authentic, very, very, you know, in, in a lot of ways, uh, a spiritual place for people. I mean, people feel alive, and I can't tell you how many folks who have moved to New Orleans from all over the world, including one of your own musicians there, uh, Teresa Anderson, who uh, sure. we, we interviewed, who, you know, talked about how she was awakened. She just felt like something inside of her awakened when That's she... That's right, and she came all the way from Sweden, from uh, Gothenburg, I believe, and mm-hmm. uh, I remember when she first came to town, and, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, and she became a, a wonderful addition and added... Uh, angelic voice, I guess you'd say, to, to uh, the great New Orleans idiom. And New Orleans is a music mecca uh, for people from all over the world. It still is the cradle of jazz. Mm-hmm. And um, all you have to do is be here about 10 minutes for that to become self-evident to <laughs> see that uh, no one here is faking it. They're just doing it, and they, they keep continuing uh, to add to it. So mm-hmm. uh, even though you have all these other places out there that are um, wonderful for the music, if you want to catch roots music, uh, from the modern world um, and see how it was developed, you can still come here um, and and find music, free moving entertainment like a brass band. That's so important to to understand the concept that it's not music that you dress up to go to a concert to mm-hmm. or sit down. You don't pay a price for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it literally comes right past your doorstep, and all you have to do is stick your head out the door and go and join in, and you're part of it. Mm-hmm. So the the music that is the cultural fiber and the daily functional music in New Orleans is what um, is the most miraculous thing, that this music still continues on a daily basis, that it happens. And uh, that's why it's so great to work for a national park that's dedicated to jazz because it encompasses all of these different styles of music and the cultural happenings and elements, the French Quarter Fest, the Jazz Fest, mm-hmm. the Satchmo Summer Fest, uh, the Bayou Boogaloo, the Mardi Gras Indians, you can come and see that still happening here the same way that it has happened. Mm-hmm. So you can hear the same rhythms that were played or very similar, almost untapped from the things that happened in Congo Square, uh, you know, 170 years ago. 
Bruce, you've done a, a wonderful job of sharing a lot of the history, a lot of the great names, but you're also going to be playing a role during the French Quarter Festival and hopefully uh, generating new jazz musicians as you manage the children's stage during the festival. Talk to us about what visitors can expect. Well, uh, I say come down and, and check out the wonderful uh, resource that we have. And, and to me, I always say that... Um, uh, music and entertainment is New Orleans' uh, greatest last resource, natural resource. This is what people do here. Uh, they don't do anything without music. So come down to the children's stage and be able to see the, uh, the great wealth of um, talent that's still here, still coming. Uh, and that's what we try and present on children's stage. We have a wonderful violin player that's going to start off the set. Mm. Um Amosie Miller's daughter, Kyla Miller. She's going to play. We have the New Orleans Traditional Brass Band, which is a group of kids that uh, was formed out of our Saturday morning music program. They'll be playing with the Storyville Stompers. So I like to pair up often um, older professional musicians with uh, young people also to be able to uh, have them act as mentors and show them and pass along the spirit of the music and the tradition. Uh, we have the Houston um, uh, jazz group coming in from Houston, Texas, which is a wonderful group that Dr. Wilson from the Houston's downtown uh, urban music program uh, is bringing over. We'll have Zohar Israel, who uh, does uh, African drumming and dance and stilt walking. We'll have the Red Hots, uh, which is uh, one of our students from our Saturday morning music program that formed his own brass band. He's doing a wonderful job, Doyle Cooper. Um, so we have a, a, a great lineup, and in between that, we have uh, swing dancers that are going to come out and teach the kids uh, swing dancing. Also, so that's going to be a, a, a great time, and, and we keep the stage lively, mm -hmm. keep it uh, going the whole time. So, also we'll have the talented and music students from uh, a few different schools here in the city, from um, Warren Easton and from McDonough. Uh, 38 and 35, uh, led by Hurley Blanchard, who's a, a music teacher in the local school system here. So all those things will be happening all day Saturday. And uh, so don't just think that the kids' uh, tent is going to be something that um, adults can't get involved in because all these people are amazing, uh, the musicianship, and uh, it's a place to be. It's going to be located right beside the Aquarium of the Americas, uh, on the far corner there, close to the ferry, a uh, beautiful location right on the Mississippi River. Bruce Barnes, Park Ranger at the New Orleans Jazz National Historical Park. We thank you for being with us. And we'll thank see you. you on Saturday. All right. See you then. <laughs> okay. Thank you. When we come back, we're going to learn about Faubourg Treme as Director Don Logston stops by to share the history of this remarkable neighborhood as World Footprints Radio continues after this. Hi, my name is Anna. I'm from Romania. Make sure you don't miss the World Footprint Radio every Tuesday. making sure the air in your dream home is healthy for your family to breathe. Building a radon-resistant home is easy. Just ask your builder or go to epa.gov slash radon. A message from the US EPA. What would happen if you didn't follow the established path? Would you feel scared or proud? 
Could you explain that helping the people of Peru improve their own community would also have an effect on your own? Would you rather make your own way or spend a lifetime saying, what if? Life is calling. How far will you go? Peace Corps. To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or go to peacecorps.gov. As we continue our coverage of New Orleans, we wanted to share with you a neighborhood that isn't well-known but is so integral to the cultural history and development of the Crescent City, the neighborhood of Faubourg Treme. Arguably the oldest black neighborhood in America, the birthplace of the civil rights movement in the South, and the home of jazz, Treme is a district where African Americans live free during the days of slavery, and people of different socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds cohabitated. The many golden nuggets of this untold history of the neighborhood have recently been captured in a new documentary by film director Don Logston entitled Faubourg Treme, The Untold Story of Black New Orleans. And Don Logston joins us today. Don, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's our pleasure. Now, I understand this film marked your feature-length directing debut, and my goodness, all the kudos. You have won numerous awards, um, Tribeca, I mean, just off the charts. Congratulations to you, first of all. Thank you. Well, it was a very collaborative effort. I started it several years ago with an old friend of mine from high school. We're both New Orleans natives. Uh, his name is Lois Eric Eli, and he had recently bought a house in the neighborhood, and so part of his journey of fixing up that house became a story in the film. And uh, he'd never made a film either. Uh, I'd spent most of my life editing films, documentaries, mostly for other people. Mm -hmm. And his career up till then had been as a primarily as a newspaper writer. Mm. So it was a big, big jump for both of us. Well, you know, isn't that wonderful? What you know, when you step out on faith, like uh, like you guys did, you know what what comes back to you. Now, can you give us a, a brief synopsis of this film? It's a film that is an exploration on many different levels of this community. We actually started thinking that we were um, most entranced and interested in showing the contemporary sort of artistic flourishing that was happening there. Mm. Uh, and the more we worked on the project, the more we got engrossed in the history of the um, neighborhood, which very few people know anything about and which we came to believe was um, really vital to American history and a super important chapter of civil rights history that nobody knew about outside of New Orleans, or even very many New Orleanians. Um, so the history became a really... Um, important part of the film and what we try to do is combine those two elements and show how the history continues to influence people's lives today. Um, you see it in the architecture, in the music, in many, many different ways. Less so in the politics, unfortunately, although hopefully there's a renaissance coming in that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, we begin when the neighborhood began, which was in the very uh, beginning of the city of New Orleans. Uh, in the 1700s, and we follow the characters all the way through the beginning of them coming to terms with, with what had happened to their mm. community after Katrina. Mm. Don, talk to us a little bit about the neighborhood itself. Geographically, it's right on the other side of the French Quarter, if you're going away from the river. Uh, the actual boundaries of Treme have changed many, many times over the years, but 
one that's always stayed the same is Rampart Street. So when you mm -hmm. cross out of the French Quarter over Rampart Street, you're in Treme. Um, the architecture there is primarily Creole cottages and shotguns, mm. although there are some very elegant, um, elaborate mansions that still exist. It was, was and always has been a very mixed neighborhood on all different levels um, mm -hmm. of, of, of meanings of that word. So throughout its entire history, there have been white and black people living there. There have been uh, immigrants and natives. There were free people. There were slaves, of course, not anymore, but uh, there were, you know, a, it was predominantly a working class neighborhood, but there were also quite a few wealthy people and a lot of poor people. You know, it's not, I don't want to leave the impression that it was some sort of a paradise mm. uh, back in the 17 and 1800s by any means. It was a place where people were always struggling to survive, mm -hmm. but it was also a place where things were infinitely better and there were infinitely more possibilities than there were for African Americans in the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. um, today, if you go to the neighborhood, well, actually, let me back up a little bit. When we started filming in the neighborhood in 2000, I think you could easily say that even within New Orleans, most people thought of that area as run down and dangerous. Um, and yet still sort of the holding ground for some of the most important culture in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Parades happen there at least once a week. Mm -hmm. This really vibrant church life. Um, it feels in a lot of ways when you walk through it in the daytime mm -hmm. like a very small village in another country. You know, something that barely exists anymore in the, in the United States where everybody knows each other. Um, if you went there at night, it was a different story because a lot of people were afraid to go outside because the crime is pretty intense. Mm -hmm. um, since Katrina, it's changed again in many ways. There are parts of it that are more dilapidated because of flooding or abandonment, but it's also seen quite a surge of interest mm -hmm. from developers and from people who never would have thought of living in that area before the storm. So I, I think the best way to describe it right now is it's a neighborhood on the cusp of a lot of change, and people are really hopeful mm -hmm. about what kind of change that will be and what kind of change it will mean for them. You know, I, I know you started, as you mentioned, you started filming this documentary prior to, uh, to Katrina, but um, you actually edited it afterwards, and I'm just wondering how... Katrina came into play, and just uh, because nobody nobody expected Katrina, um, and and I would assume that Katrina actually may have resulted in perhaps you going in a different direction in some ways with this film. Is that a correct assumption? Yes, I would say it is. It I think it really honed our focus in that we decided that the most important story for us was the civil rights story and the political struggles that had happened there um, over the centuries um, because what happened during Katrina so clearly brought home to us that these were ongoing issues. Mm -hmm. um, we unfortunately had to lose a lot of early history in order to deal with Katrina in the film because we had, you know, time limitations on how long the documentary could be. Mm -hmm. And also you can, you can really only tell so many stories 
inside that format without overwhelming people with detail. Yeah, and I and I know you uncovered uh, a tremendous number of, of stories, um, and and I know one of your main characters uh, is uh, a 75 year old gentleman, uh, a carpenter, in fact, uh, named Irvin Irving, who is uh, a, a captivating storyteller. So, share with us a few of the stories that you uncovered uh, that Irvin shared as, as you know uh, about his life growing up in, in Treme and uh, and some of the, the history and the golden nuggets that you actually uncovered. Sure. Uh, Mr. Trevine to me represents everything that's special about New Orleans. I just really feel blessed to have met him. <laughs> uh, he unfortunately is no longer with us. He passed away shortly after Katrina. Mm. But he embodies several really great traditions that have gone for generations and generations in that neighborhood. Um, that of really skilled craftsmen. He was a wonderful carpenter, played a hand in restoring and saving a lot of the old homes in Treme in the course of his lifetime. Mm-hmm. He actually did not go up in Treme. He spent part of his early childhood there, boarded in another neighborhood called the Seventh Ward, which is also home to lots of craftsmen. Uh-huh. But his ancestors had lived there for generations, okay. and he, he worked there every day. Um, well, the big surprise was <laughs> he was renovating Lois's house when we first met him. Uh, and Lola said, we've got to interview my carpenter. He's just this great storyteller. <laughs> uh, and little did we know, he starts telling stories. He's like, oh, I have this great, great uncle. Yeah, he used to publish a newspaper or something. Mm. <laughs> uh, and it turned out he was the editor of the first black daily newspaper in the United States. Oh, my goodness. Um, which was initially published in the Treme. So that was a really, that became a, big thread in our story at one point and mm-hmm. trying to discover more about who this uh, man, his name is Paul Trevine was. Um, but he also just had really wonderful descriptions of what daily life used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that didn't make it into the film unfortunately, but Trevino was home to dozens and dozens and dozens of organizations um, that were called mutual aid societies mm-hmm. and social benefit clubs and he grew up going to quite a few of those as a child. They would, you know, throw parties and things like that, but more importantly, or equally importantly, I should say, they um, helped send people to school, they provided training, they provided burial benefits, support to families when the main breadwinners weren't able to go out and work. Uh, and that was really part of a tight, um, tight-knit sort of insular society that sustained, sustained itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Don, you've given us uh, a flavor of, of the interesting history of uh, Treme, but why do you think so much of this history remained hidden uh, for such a long time? A really good question. <laughs> um, you know, my dad was a historian, and he dedicated a lot of his life to uncovering much of this history. Mm-hmm. And when I say uncovering, it's not like it was buried. Well, I guess mm-hmm. it was buried. It was buried in archives, and a lot of it was written in French. Mm-hmm. So, to be fair, that's part of the problem. But I would, I would venture to say that it's a very small part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And that the bigger part of the problem is that the people who were writing textbooks in the Deep South really had no interest in this history being told. Mm-hmm. Uh, or preserved in archives, an awful lot of the images we got came from people's homes. Mm. They weren't, I mean, some of them are from collections, of course, but 
only, I would say, in the 60s and 70s did there become a real effort to try and include African-American history mm-hmm. into the textbooks. I went to high school in New Orleans, and so did Lois, and we weren't taught any of this. Mm. And we had a whole semester of Louisiana history. <laughs> yeah, well, d- ditto, actually. We're, I think we're probably all in the same uh, same age range, and, and, and really, I think until recently, there's there's been no no acknowledgement, no awareness of um, our history and you know and I think one of the things that really frustrates me and, 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 and what I love about what you guys did is you know it's not just uh, black history or about white history it's collectively all of our history this is you know this is this is common history I couldn't agree more. I'm not black, and I didn't grow up in Tremel, but, you know, it's mm-hmm. my city, and it's my country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and these are incredibly important things that happen there. Absolutely. That enrich us all when we know about them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, New Orleans is trying to rebuild um, from not quite the ground up, but really uh, it's the most fundamental rebuilding of a major American city that's ever happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think knowing this history and knowing what has been what went wrong in the past but also some of the amazing things that were tried mm-hmm. is incredibly important at this stage of our present absolutely absolutely I, I wanted to mention just for our audience uh, sake is that this film has been seen on PBS and you've done a lot of screenings uh, around the country um, According to the website, your website right now, I think the uh, April second was your last uh, last screening uh, in in this country. Do you have? What are your plans going forward? Where where else can we see this wonderful documentary? Well, um, we actually continue to have screenings that we have nothing to do with these days. Hmm. Uh, it's really one of the greatest things that's been happening is the extent of a. Uh, the variety of groups who are using it. So mm-hmm. just a couple of days ago, we had a benefit screening for an organization that is trying to train young people in California in the culinary arts. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and one of these kids had seen the doc and was really inspired by it. And, uh, so, and then we have things that are benefits for urban planners, things that are mm-hmm. benefits for, you know, Catholic church groups. Lois just spoke at a uh, convention of reformed rabbis who thought it was important for their group to see the film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's really uh, having a life that we never could have predicted. Um, if people aren't able to go to it, you can look on our website to see where screenings are happening, uh, and you can also order a copy of the DVD on our website. And your website addresses? I'm sorry. Tr- sorry, tremedoc.com, T-R-E-M-E-D-O-C.com. Okay. And then PBS will continue to rebroadcast it uh, for the next, I believe it's two or three years. Generally, they run it um, during Black History Month, mm-hmm. and also some stations run it during Carnival season. Okay. Don, I'm curious, given the impact this film has had in so many communities, communities that cross the economic, uh, social strata, religious strata, I'm wondering about the contemporary Treme community today and the response that they've had to the film and to some of the things that you've been able to share with them. What have they said? What have the young people there uh, said about the film and perhaps a sense of pride that they have in living in such a historic neighborhood, even though it's a very tough neighborhood? Right. The response has been really remarkable. 
I have to say. And it's not just young people from Tremor, but from New Orleans. We've had a lot of screenings in schools. Um, and, you know, I don't know what you were like when, it, when you were a teenager, but when I used to hear film, <laughs> you know, I can, I can see the kids kind of like sink into their chairs and get ready to take a nap or text their friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And about 20 minutes into it, you can see that they're all really engaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the questions that they ask afterwards are similar to some of the ones that you're asking, which is like, why, why didn't anybody teach me this? <laughs> or, you know, I heard a little bit about that from my great-grandfather. Mm-hmm. You know, if anybody knows anything about the history, they, they learned it in their families. And the things that kids are most proud of is the music. Mm. Uh, because that's the thing that survived the most. It's the most visible representation of the culture to the outside world, I think. And it also, it's really been passed on also family by family by family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's still very common to walk around that neighborhood and see little troops of elementary school children forming their own little band and marching around the stage. Oh, dear. <laughs> Yeah. Now you've had, uh, you, you know, you've been blessed with a lot of support uh, as well. A lot of uh, you've had a wonderful group of partners and, and contributors. Uh, I think um, uh, Witten Marsalis, uh, among others. Get, talk about some of the people who actually uh, came together and helped you build this wonderful project. Well, I sort of see this project as a reunion of a bunch of New Orleanians who were scattered in many different places. Um, I had just recently moved back to the city when I decided to launch the project. Lois had moved back a few years before me. Wenton, of course, is in New York running the Lincoln's Jazz Center, but he went to high school with us. Mm-hmm. And Lois used to be a manager of his band, a road manager. Our cinematographer is an incredibly wonderful, talented DP out in Los Angeles who's originally from Treme. His name is Keith Smith. And then Annette, we also had another young uh, Venezuelan who was living in New Orleans who had been there for, I think, it's, it's his second home. He'd been there, I think he went to high school there and then college mm-hmm. in Diego Velasco. And then, I mean, all the way down the, the list, the woman who helped us gather a lot of the archival footage, I think her family is fourth or fifth generation Tremaine, and they still run the funeral parlor in the heart of the neighborhood. So it was really a great kind of reunion of New Orleans. I think we all felt really strongly that our city has been the subject of so many documentaries and television specials made by people who come down from L.A. or New York for a couple of weeks Mm -hmm. that we wanted to try and tell our own story. Well, according to all the reviews you've gotten, you know, must-sees, um, you know, the reviews that talk about the accuracy of, of your story, I mean, I, I think you guys uh, have hit it spot on, and, um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, the accolades that you, you've gotten uh, from, from critics uh, alike, uh, I think, validate what, you, what, you, what you've done in, in your mission, and, and uh, mission accomplished. <laughs> Congrats to you. <laughs> 
we've been very lucky. Mm. Well, Don, we appreciate so much your time today and for uh, for sharing the history of Treme and 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 certainly uh, for documenting uh, the story and the history accurately. And we look forward to seeing it uh, as well. Don Logston is the uh, film director of Froberg Treme, the Untold Story of Black New Orleans. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, and I hope you have a great time at French Quarter Festival. Thank you again for joining us today, and certainly we invite you to visit our website, our new website, at worldfootprints.com. It's been a pleasure to share some travel time with you today, especially in New Orleans, one of our favorite places. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week, same time, same frequency. And until then, leave positive footprints and build a meaningful legacy one step at a time. 